Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode number 53, which will be on time this week. I do apologize for the mix-up last week, but after eight straight weeks of having it on time, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, every Friday morning, uh, real life got in the way, so I do apologize. And then Libsyn decided to be stupid. Uh, my name is Michael Bailey. And fresh off my two-hour tour of Dreamland, where I sawed some logs and caught some Zs, I am Scott Gardner, sitting here in my battered and weathered but still awesome JSA t-shirt, which is older, I'm presuming, than a good portion of our listening audience. So, hey, how's it going? Which one is that? Is that the one where they're all... Like, it's like a circle and all the... It's... I'm trying to remember the JSA t-shirts I've seen. Yeah, this one, I'm trying to remember who the artist is on this one, and I'm drawing a blank at the moment, but it's, uh, you got Hawkman in the, yeah, it's a white circle, yeah. it's a black t-shirt, and you got Hawkman in the background, and he's got his arms stretched out, and, and he's got, uh, let's see, we've got Dr. Fate in his little half helmet, we got the Spectre, Starman, Johnny Thunder, uh, Dr. Midnight, and Hootie, is that his name, Hootie, Thou? 
I think so. Whatever his name is. Uh, Wonder Woman. And you know, I'm not sure if this is Sandman or the Tarantula. I'm going to guess that it's Sandman. And the Atom. It's awesome. I've had it a long, long time. I, I would I would venture to guess that this is probably at least older than Scotty is. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, he was born in 95? Six. 96. 96. Yep. I think that actually he was about three years old when that shirt came out. <laughs> Could be. Because that, that shirt came out when they were bringing back the JSA hardcore in 99 and 2000. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. If... Um, Keen-eyed listeners may notice a difference in my voice, and that is because I am talking to a through a new microphone, uh, which is pretty awesome. That I got last week, uh, saved up some money, upgraded the equipment. I am talking through a blue snowball, which is neither a snowball nor is it. That's blue. what that picture. Okay, because you sent me a picture to my phone. And mm-hmm. you know my my I'm not I'm not able to like zoom in or anything on my yeah phone. I know I, we I, have I'm, the same phone yeah and and I was like what the hell is that thing I didn't know if it was like some freaky sex toy or what I had it just said blue snowball and I was like uh okay <laughs> I had no idea so that that's cool okay that solves that mystery solved we can go home now as I've been joking all week it looks kind of like an imperial probe droid <laughs> from Empire Strikes Back like this thing got launched towards Hoth and then came out <laughs> I'm gonna send you the sound clip of that thing going <laughs> I would appreciate that um no, it's an awesome freestanding uh, microphone that set me back a little bit, but you know, it's 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 all for the show to sound better. Because God knows that USB headset and the whine that that USB headset had <clears throat> was really starting to piss me off. Yeah, actually. I mean, you know, between that and your voice, it's just Jesus. I mean, I'd like the episodes, but I just had such a headache at the end of them. You know? Yeah, and you know, it's really good that we do an audio podcast because. God knows your face isn't good for uh, TV or video. Touche, touche. I mean, especially since you have no teeth. I mean, a lot of people don't know this. Scott has no teeth. He is just has a really complicated set of dentures. Or eyebrows. That he, uh, that he pops out to scare children into not sucking their thumb anymore, like my grandfather did to uh, one of my second cousins once. So, Jesus, that would traumatize a child. Uh, Jen- Jennifer was like four years old and he's like stop sucking your thumb she goes why and he like pretended to suck his thumb and popped his dent oh man <laughs> uh, she's still screaming <laughs> I don't doubt it man oh man that could really mess a kid up holy cow uh, most of, come on, let's face it. Most of uh, the best childhood stories are the ones that are traumatic. I mean, this is true. This is true. It made it made us the people we are today, and explains a great many things. I mean, you're, you're talking to a man whose father taught his children "Hickory Dickory Dock." Three mice ran up the clock. The clock struck one, and the others escaped with minor injuries. That's how it actually went. So that when we go to school and hear something different, we're confused and a little bit frightened. So. 
Well, you know, much like I'm sure that 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 all generations look at back at the prior generations with a certain bit of, you know, you know, the the whole thing about, well, you know, back in my day, you know, we walked, you know, uphill to school both ways in the snow and all that sort of thing. You know, it, it, it's those sort of things I look back on and and go, you know, that's why our generation wasn't a bunch of pussies, you know, because like <laughs> I learned to swim by being literally picked up by the seat of the pants and thrown into a lake. That's how I learned to swim. It was pretty much swim or die, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, my dad taught me to drive in a similar fashion. He just <laughs> dove out of the car on a dirt road and <laughs> near a cliff, and I had to hit the brakes. So. <laughs> headed down, headed down seventy five at like yeah. ninety miles an hour. He jumps out of the car. Here you go, boy. Learn to drive. I wonder. You know, sometimes I think about what life would have been like if I did learn to drive down in Georgia, and I think my driving skills would have been much worse. Oh yeah, uh, than they were because the majority of these fuckers can't drive. They can't <laughs> drive for shit. Yeah, it's funny. My it, God, it's so odd that you bring that up because my wife and I were just having this conversation yesterday about uh, about drivers because I was bitching about the drivers here, but they are nowhere near as bad as the drivers in Georgia. Was ultimately the point that I, I ended up making in that story because. You know, you would think, my, my drive to work, uh, much of it involves I-4, and you would think that the drivers that you would bitch about the most would be the out-of-staters, because, you know, naturally, we have a ton of them, you know, because they're oh, yeah. coming here, and it's really not. For the most part, the, the out-of-staters are fine. I don't have a problem with them. I mean, you know, they... They'll do the occasional stupid thing, you know, like cut across in front of you without signaling because they realize they're about to miss their exit or something like that. But for the most part, it's the local people that are the worst drivers. But, you know, they're, they're, they hold nothing to Georgia drivers. We're just, I'm sorry, Georgia, but yeah, the, the drivers there are, they're atrocious. I mean, that was largely why I stopped, when, when we were living out in Carrollton, why I stopped working in Atlanta. You know, I used to have to drive across Atlanta to go to North Lake Mall is where I worked. And I gave up that job just because I became absolutely convinced that I would eventually die on that drive to, to work or back because people are just insane. In Especially the on the interstates, 20 and 75 and 85 and... God, it's just like, I need to get over, so everyone else out of my way. Mm -hmm. And why can't these people understand the concept of a four-way stop? And boy, does does do people just completely shut down mentally when the traffic lights, when the power to the traffic lights are out. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's but, the scariest thing I've ever seen is that you've got half of the people pull up to the, the four-way flashing light. And just sit there because they have no concept of what to do if the light doesn't tell them to go. And then the other half of the people blow through the fucking thing like it's not even there. So, I mean, yeah, it's it, it's like some post-apocalyptic movie. You know? It really is. It was, it was like those scenes of, uh, if you've ever seen the remake of Dawn of the Dead, you know, where... You know, there's a great aerial shot of the woman driving down the road and this car comes out of nowhere and, like, creams. Oh, the yeah. It was just like that in real life. I mean, I saw things like that happen when the four-way stops would go down. It was just crazy. And, yeah, it, it is. It's 
it, it's like something out of like Death Race 2000 or something. When <laughs> yeah, it was it was frightening. Absolutely. And if you and if you stay in traffic on 75 long enough, a naked woman will walk by your car, much <laughs> like in uh, the, the the Dawn of the Dead remake. So. <laughs> Or the day I was stuck in traffic on Highway 85 going into Riverdale and a very overweight African-American woman got out of... Traffic was at a standstill. And she got out of her car and that's when everyone realized, hey, she's not wearing any clothes. Whoops! (laughs) It's just like, is it that hot? (laughs) I mean, wow. So, yeah. Uh, but we're, we're not here to talk about Georgia in the present. We're here to talk about New York City in 1942. Awesome. Awesome. Folks, this series, which has been pretty good so far, largely good, I would say. There is some clunkers in there. Mm-hmm. Is about to enter one of the best eras of the entire series with the issue we are covering tonight. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Just because not only does the All-Stars really come together as a team for the first time, in my opinion, uh, instead of just doing other weird things, uh, Jerry Ordway takes over as the penciler of not only the interiors, but of the covers as well. Thank God. Yes. And this has a beautiful cover. It does. It does. It's a great, great cover. Well, do we want to go ahead and uh, and jump into this one? Yep, you're the one telling us all about it. So, all right, we have All Star Squadron number nineteen. This is the March nineteen eighty three cover dated issue. Has a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful cover on it by um, Jerry Ordway. Bannered at the top, the return of the Justice Society all-out action from Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. And we've got a giant green-tinted brainwave looking very much like Dr. Savannah from Yeah, uh, from I was thinking Captain the same Marvel. thing, actually. They, they look like they could be uh, like look-alike cousins or something like that. And he's, uh, you know doing the typical gloating, laughing type of thing over the bodies of Johnny Thunder, Dr. Midnight, Sandman, Wonder Woman, Starman, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, and the Atom, while Firebrand, Commander Steel, Robot Man, Johnny Quick, Firebrand, and uh, who the hell is that? Oh, Tarantula, look on. It's uh, It's a really nice dynamic cover. I really enjoy that a lot. And we have, turn the page, turn the page. We've got on this one, Roy Thomas is the writer. We've got Gene D'Angelo, Dean D'Angelo Color, uh, colorist rather, John Costanza Letterer, Len Wein editor. And give a warm welcome back to Jerry Ordway and his dynamic debut as both penciler and inker of the All-Stars Awesome Adventures. This story is entitled Death considered as a state of mind now at this point folks also we have uh by the way we have a um historical quote that says we want our dreams and our mathematics by ralph waldo emerson speaking of his fellow americans special thanks to the fabulous flo steinberg and Danette Thomas, New York World's Fair researchers now at this point folks i am going to fess up that uh 
after reading this story and agonizing over when in the world I was going to find the time to sit down and write a very uh, thorough um, synopsis for this, I was looking at the historical notes in this awesome brand spanking new copy of the All-Star Companion Volume 2 that I got for Father's Day. And looking at the synopsis in here and realizing that mine will not compare at all with this one. And mine would be much, 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 much more verbose, rather. You can't talk tonight. Verbose than the one that's in here, which is a simple, short little paragraph that I think beautifully sums up what this issue is essentially about. So I'm just going to give you the uh, the synopsis, the summary, right out of the book. It says, summoned to the perisphere on the grounds of the 1939-40 New York World's Fair, six all-stars discover eight JSAers held in suspended animation by brainwave, pictured only as a giant floating brain. He induces the brain. (laughs) He induces the JSAers visions of heroic feats they perform in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor so that he can make them dream vividly of their own deaths and thereby lose their combined will to live if the All-Stars can't save them. You know, it's a short, sweet synopsis, but it pretty effectively sums up what this issue is about, because holy shit, did Roy Thomas must have got paid by the letter or word or something, because holy cow is this... Paid by the consonant. I'm serious, dude. Now, I'm not knocking Roy. I love Roy Thomas. I enjoy his comics very much. I love his storytelling. But holy crap, dude. Okay, not everybody that's pictured needs to talk, okay? (laughs) You know, if, if TV has taught me anything, is that it's fine to have people in the background that don't say nothing. But Roy comes from the Stan Lee school of comic book writing, which means that if you're in frame, you got to say something. So it is one wordy comic. But, you know, that's it's, it's I'm not knocking it. It's not a bad thing. It's just wow. You know, when you get used to the way modern comics are written, where when you can literally take, you know, take it into the bathroom and you no sooner got your pants unzipped and you're done reading the damn thing and to sit and read something like this, which could, you know, I mean, you know, seriously, you could have like a major operation and still be reading this when it's all over with. You know what I mean? I mean, this is this is some meaty stuff. It really is. So uh, it, it's yeah. Anyway, I don't know what the hell point I was trying to make there. Let's just go to the historical notes. We got for this one, we got uh, Johnny Quick's uh, quip on page one reflects the fact that Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy co-starred in several MGM movies in the 30s, including San Francisco and Boomtown. What was the quip that he made? Let's look that um, up real quick. The uh, Johnny Quick's talking about the fact that he carried Liberty Bell and Firebrand from where they were at the end of the last issue. That's right. And Tarantula says, right, you'll note it was Robot Man who had to haul me all the way from Manhattan. And that's when Johnny Quick says, does Gable carry Spencer Tracy around? Meaning, uh, if you have a sausage, I don't want to carry. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. He carried the girls and he didn't want to carry Tarantula. Yeah, because he's not about the guys. I can appreciate that from Johnny Quick. (laughs) All right, uh, let's see. 
When Roy Thomas sent Jerry Ordway photo reference on the fairgrounds, Jerry also used some of his own, including the Four Freedom statues on pages two and three. Now, pages two and three in this book, not quite a double splash page, but pretty close to it, and it's awesome. Yes. We have, uh, we have the, the uh, All-Stars, again, Commander Steel, Johnny Quick, Robot Man, uh, Firebrand, Liberty Bell, and Tarantula, and they are standing in the plaza, and off in the distance you've got the Trilon and the Perisphere, which were the symbols of the of the New York World's Fair in 1939 and 40. And in the foreground, they're admiring the uh, the statues, which were called the four – they were uh, FDR's Four Freedoms. And there was like a – sort of like a what? Like a reflecting pool type of thing mm-hmm. or something like that. And uh, yes. yeah, it's just – that's a beautiful – Beautiful page. Like I say, not not quite a double page splash, but pretty close to it. It's uh, it's really nice. I like that quite a lot. Continuing on with the uh, historical notes here, we've got uh, Danette Thomas, Roy's wife, who soon legally changed her name to Dan, and Flo Steinberg, fabulous Flo of mid sixties Marvel bullpen bulletins pages, who was Stan Lee's corresponding secretary, are listed as New York World's Fair researchers. Roy and Dan visited the old fairgrounds, uh, which had also been the scene of the 1964-65 World's Fair, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, which Roy Thomas had attended, the lucky bastard. The only building left from the 1939-40 fair was uh, was now the Queen's Museum. Roy also corresponded during this time with Helen A. Harrison, author of the 1980 book Dawn of a New Day, the New York World's Fair, 1939-40, which he utilized. And I've got to find this book. I really, really, really want to read that. You know what he doesn't say here? What's that? What the hell Flo Steinberg did. He talks yeah, I was about, curious uh, about that myself. <laughs> so... Maybe we'll have to ask him about that if we ever get to interview him. I uh, I am going to uh, to venture a guess that that we will eventually be able to get Roy because when I when I spoke to him about you know the show that we're doing and everything he was very enthusiastic about it and and showed great interest. It was uh, it was just for him it, it all comes down to time you know his his time is at a premium which you know I can appreciate he's a busy guy he's got a lot of you know irons in the fires and all that sort of thing but he was definitely intrigued by our show so I'm hoping I'm hoping I would re- this is one of the things I would very specifically like to talk to him about oh yes definitely uh let's see Tarantula mentions that the Trilon is 610 feet tall, not 700 as per a contemporary article in Life magazine and many sloppily researched articles since. That part of the issue read a little awkwardly to me. Yeah. Only because it was like, it's like having that friend that knows like super obscure stuff and they've always got to like call you out when you say something wrong. You know what I mean? Because Tarantula just kind of butts in like, Oh, by the way, you know, that article in Life magazine is wrong by the, you know, it's actually, and it's like, you just expect one of the other guys to look at him and be like, you're such a dork, you know? know, It's like, who knows that? But I can forgive it. I see Roy Thomas does a lot of that in this series, you know, And, and sometimes it comes off very nicely. And then other times it's telegraphed from a mile away that he's just telling you something that he learned from, you know, his research or whatever. And and this is one of those 
those instances, I think, where it, it didn't come off as well as it could have. Uh, Electro, the motorman, who was a robot, actually made appearances at other events after the fair ended. He wasn't put in mothballs as in issue 19. Now, Electro in this issue, he's uh, he was the big robot where as they enter into the uh, – was it the, the Trilon or the Paris? I think it was into the Parisphere. They ended up fighting with uh, with Electro, and I liked that a lot because he was. He's just a giant, clunky, you know, like old sci-fi movie-style robot, yep. and it was great. I love that. Um, He's a robot. Do we want to read these notes on the, on the other side of the page as well? Because I think a lot of these are somewhat relevant to uh, sure, go ahead. as well. Okay, so um, about the fair itself, uh, the 610-foot the, uh, Trilon and the 200-foot Parasphere, both names were coined especially for them, were the theme structures at the 1939-40 New York World's Fair. Note the long helicline people walked down uh, to exit from the uh, Parasphere, which housed a model future, uh, model future metropolis called Democrosity. Ubiquitous as the Art Deco symbol of the fair and its World of Tomorrow motif, on our Earth, these structures were nevertheless demolished in late 1940 for scrap metal to aid the defense effort. But on the far more imaginative Earth 2, they still existed in early 1942, and after issue 19, would become, spoiler alert, the new headquarters of the All-Star Squadron and... I must profess one of the major reasons why I have such a, a fondness and affinity for the all-star squadron. I can see that. I, I definitely do. Cause I geek out about stuff like this. Uh, let's see. I'm going to skip over the thing about doc Savage. Um, uh, okay, I don't really see anything. Do you see anything else like really relevant on that page? No, because the thing about Secret Origins number seven would derail us into a major tangent. So I think we should stop. Right. <laughs> um. Let's see. Okay, so we got got some other stuff on the other page. Okay, Elect. I love this. They have a picture of Electro, which again, look this guy up on the internet. He's really really cool. And by the way, spoiler alert again, we have not seen the last of Electro. But the, the article here all about Electro is actually named Electro Assassin, which I thought, you know, for a bunch of comic book geeks, that's funny. You know, they're going to yes. get the joke with that one. I thought that was very funny. So it says, Electro the Motorman was a major attraction at the 39 World's Fair. He was later given a mechanical dog named Sparko, probably the forerunner of Robot Man's mid-40s metal uh, companion, Robbie, which I had no idea. That's funny. Um Electro, and you know, I have a theory. You know, of course, this would be a retcon, but you know how they've taken to started calling Robot Man Robbie all the time, and he's yep. already professed several times that he really, really hates that. I have a theory that he invented the metal dog and named him Robbie to kind of like deflect the nickname off to the dog. You know what I mean? We named the dog Indiana. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I liked that dog. <laughs> Electro did have a few bad habits, though, like smoking cigarettes to amuse the customers at the fair's General Electric exhibit. Uh, Thomas and Ordway gave Electro... Moto would die in the mid-60s of lung cancer. 
<laughs> Thomas and Ordway gave Electro another bad habit, namely trying to kill the All-Star Squadron. <laughs> of course, he, it, was only following orders. The brainwave was the mastermind behind it all. For four Ordway-penciled panels dropped from the published comic for reasons uncertain, see Alter Ego number 44. And I did that, and I was amazed to find, holy crap, I actually own this issue of Alter Ego. I have precious few issues of Alter Ego, but this just happened to be one of them sitting in my collection. And I didn't really remember it until I dug it out, and I was like, oh, yeah. And I just read this a couple of years ago, and it's great because it has um, it has a it's it's an issue that touts itself as a special issue on the Justice Society All Star Squadron and someone. I have that issue too. Oh, do you I, have I don't that know one? where it is? Yeah, I don't know where it is right now, but I do have that because that has that that double. Like a gateful, like like a, a wraparound cover yes. of that preview image mm-hmm. uh, that ran v- around this time. Yeah, oh, that's yep. a beautiful piece of art. It is. Ordway. It's great. It's a Jerry Ordway cover. It's a wraparound cover, and it shows uh, the uh, JSA and the All Stars battling pretty much a rogues gallery of all their their big villains. And coming out of like a like a temporal vortex type of thing, way off in the in the distance, you see the uh, someone who's still in our future yet, the Infinity Incorporated, which I can't wait till we get there because I really like those guys. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, see, I'm not a big fan of Golden Age stuff. A whole lot of this issue is taken up with Golden Age JSA stuff, which, frankly, I'm sorry, I just really could give a crap less about. <laughs> but. There is some really if you get if you get a chance to get your hands on this, definitely check it out because it has great interviews in here. It has Rick uh, Rich Buckler interviewed by uh, Roy Thomas, and then it has another interview section. Roy Thomas interviews Jerry Ordway, and that's a really really great interview. Tons and tons and tons of art. Some of it published, some of it unpublished. And it's here is where this, uh, where the companion is referring to these four panels that were omitted for some reason. It says here, for whatever reason, Roy, or possibly Len, had Jerry redraw part of the sequence in All-Star Squadron number 19 in which Robot Man and Commander Steel tackle the uh, 1930-40 uh, New York World Sphere robot Electro. Which attacks, uh, which attacks them inside the Perisphere. In the process, these four Ordway penciled panels were eliminated. And they're, uh, wow, you know, for, for just being pencils, these are incredibly, incredibly detailed. One of them is one of those very, very classic comic book panels where Electro, looking very much like, uh, uh, who was the big Micronaut? Was that Megatron? No, that was the Decepticon. Biotron? Probably. It was Biotron I, I, was the really big one. I forget. I think it was Biotron. The one that had, like, the metal head. I think that's Biotron. Anyway. You're, you're more familiar with the Micronauts. Yeah, obviously not all that much more. But anyway, he's kind of, it, it, it's Electro, but it, it, with this not being colored, he looks very much like that giant Micronaut. And uh, you've got Robot Man, like, slugging him in the midsection. Very dynamic panel. Then you've the next panel is, it looks like uh, Commander Steel and Robot Man doing kind of a rope-a-dope as... Uh, Electro takes a swing at Commander Steel and just misses him as he ducks out of the way. But it's funny because Robot Man is down on all fours looking like he's trying to trip 
Electro, so that's really funny. Then the next panel is uh, Electro doing a two-fisted smash into the floor, trying to uh, smash Robot Man as Robot Man's leaping out of the way and kicking him in the face at the same time. And then the last panel is Electro has um, Robot Man in a bear hug from behind and is like squeezing him as Commander Steel's running toward them both. Really, really nice stuff. I actually would love to see that finished and uh, you know, fully, fully inked and colored and everything, just to, just to see how it would look, you know, completely finished because it's really, really nice. But yeah, as I say, if you can get your hands on uh, on this issue, it's all uh, Ultra Ego Magazine number forty four, January two thousand five issue. Nice stuff and some nice insight into this era of uh, of the JSA and the All Star Squadron. Let's see what else do we got here as far as historical notes. Uh, ch- ch- 14 Heroes and a Villain Hiss. Roy Thomas uh, has remarked that it was seeing Jerry Ordway's pencils for the page in which the six All-Stars encounter eight captive JSAers that erased any doubt about All-Star Squadron's new penciler. The brainwave conjures up lifelike images, uh, but because this was comics, he wasn't destined to meet any superheroes till All-Star Comics number 15 in 1943, he appeared to the good guys only as a giant human brain. Brains. <laughs> uh, and let's see, the last one for this time, to dream perchance to die. Because the events of All-Star Comics number 11, which uh, is kind of what this is adapting, it says the first issue produced post-Pearl Harbor were so anti-historical, like for instance, Starman recapturing Formosa, I, at least I'm assuming that's how you pronounce that. Hawkman downing Zero's launch from a Japanese aircraft character, carrier rather off San Francisco. The actions of that 1942 comic were turned into All-Star Squadron number 19 uh, into a powerful dream foisted upon the JSAers by Brainwave. Uh, he was merely setting them up for vivid, for vivid nightmare images in which they saw their own deaths as per Star Starman's uh, at the well, it's a picture here of Starman being shot up by a by a zero. <laughs> so what he did, and this is what Roy Thomas was really masterful at, was taking these old Golden Age issues, which a lot of them sometimes had some serious you know Golden Age silliness, or in this you know particular instance, here was an issue where. Clearly, the events that happened in the comic couldn't have happened in real yeah. life, you know, where basically the JSAers won the war, you know, like a month after Pearl Harbor happened, you know, in in real life. So this was Roy Thomas going back, taking that issue and going, well, gee, you know, I don't want to throw this out. You know, this comes before me and everything. And he wanted to be respectful of the material. But clearly, this story could not have happened. So he explains it away as... You know, he brings Brainwave into the whole story, and this was what Brainwave was making the JSAers see in their minds as they were captured, you know, and, and subjected to his evil machinations and all that. And I'll tell you what, I'm glad that I have this resource. And of course, it, it is somewhat explained at the at the end of the next issue too, you know, by Roy Thomas in the letters page that that's kind of what he was doing. But uh I have to admit that when I got to the end of this issue, 
if I hadn't read either of those, you know, if I hadn't read ahead to the next issue and, and Roy Thomas's explanation, or if I hadn't read this in All-Star Companion number 19, I think I would have walked away with a very different impression of this issue, which was, what the hell is the point of all this? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I wonder if other people may have as well walked away with kind of a, gee, you know, this guy seems to be going a long way to accomplish a very simple task. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know exactly what you're saying. It's just, for some reason, when I first read this issue, I knew that that's what he was doing. So mm-hmm. it never kind of entered in my mind that this was weird or anything. It was like, oh, he's just adapting that old story and making it work for this particular issue. So Right. But that's just me. I'm kind of weird at times. But even that being said, do, do you think that works, though, as far as... The story itself, does it stand alone? I mean, art-wise, no argument. It's a beautiful issue. Story-wise, without the explanation of what Thomas is doing with this story and the reasons why it exists on its own, is it a good story? Because I would argue that I was entertained by the story. However, there's a whole lot of this issue where I found myself going... Wow, you know, this guy is really going to great lengths and presumably great expense to basically just kind of fiddle far around with the JSAers. I mean, if his ultimate goal is to kill them, just kill them already. You know what I mean? He he keeps toying with them and he keeps reminding the All-Stars that he can kill them at any time, but but he keeps toying, you know, I'll give you one more chance to try to save them. You won't be able to do it, but I'll let you keep. And it's like, ultimately, well, what is your point? Are you trying to kill him or you're not trying to kill him? Make up your mind. You know what I mean? To be fair, though, that's what supervillains in comic books do. Right. Other, <laughs> otherwise, you know, Batman would have had a brain put in a bullet put in his head like the first time one of the, <laughs> the bad guys caught him. It's like, take off his mask and shoot him in the face. I mean. You make a point that's hard to argue, sir. Yes, that is, that is very true. That is, a- I um, I, for me, stuff like that, unless it's glaringly stupid, doesn't bother me, because I really liked this issue. I feel that on its own, it stands. You know, the cheese stands alone. Um, <laughs> I like showing all of the. JSAers and they're, you know, like, hey, you know, we're killing a bunch of Japanese people. Boy, are we awesome. And the the army kind of yelling at them and then saying, you're going to work for us. And Johnny Thunder being in the Navy. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> in the Navy, you can say, say you in the Navy. <laughs> that was terrible. Um, is it a little drawn out? Yes. Yes. But it's it, it's still a very entertaining read. So it's not like it's not like he's stalling for time. It all flows well into the course of the story because to show the you know JSAers getting killed at the end of the issue, you have to kind of set up how they got there. Mm-hmm. So it all flows together. But I, I will say that one of the main reasons that I like this issue so much is the art is so freaking gorgeous. Oh my, holy crap. This is awesome. Just from start to finish, you you know, it's, it's definitely 
a uh, you can really tell when Ordway is kind of inking himself. Mm-hmm. And the sh- the use of shading through most of the issue is great. The use of lighting is fantastic, uh, especially in scene like on page five where Firebrand has her hand lit up and it's in front of her face and it's all yellow and oranges and looks like it's on fire, you know, like it's being lit by her fire. I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, I want a poster of page eight of all the JSA members sitting there in their stasis fields Mm -hmm. because to me, no one draws the golden age characters better than Jerry Ordway. He nails them. He gets them. They All their costumes look fantastic. Even Fate's half-helmet looks good. And I hate it most of the yeah. time. I, li- I like the full helmet of Naboo. But, you know, he, he gets the little details, like, you know, Dr. Midnight's boots and his gloves. I mean, Mike Parabek dr- draws a great JSA. Don't get me wrong. I loved Parabek's art in that 92-93 series. Mm -hmm. But Ordway will always be my favorite because Ordway always... It's always very detailed. Like page 10, you have this, you know... This this top panel of Brainwave talking and in the reflection of his glasses you see these shocked looks on the... Except for Robot Man who looks like he wants to punch somebody in the face. But above that, when he's talking about... You know, the, the the images he can create, you have these dancers twirling around on top with these jewels between them. And it's just like, wow, that is fantastic. And even the floating brain doesn't look too goofy. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, this, this, is, this is such a great issue. I, I really still don't know how I feel about Liberty Bell's mask. I mean, I guess it's kind of necessary, but it still looks kind of weird to me. I can't quite put my finger on why, but no, everybody looks great. The action just pops off the page. The um, the normal looking characters, like the commanding officer, towards the end of the issue, looks great. Um, I, I I do like the thing where Johnny Thunder goes, "How am I going to be in an army battalion when I'm in the navy?" <laughs> I don't know why. I, I don't know why I'm doing a Don Knotts impersonation for Johnny Thunder. <laughs> this is crazy. Why are you doing this? Jack. <laughs> Sorry. Now, I, I really enjoyed the issue. I, I, I had a lot of fun. Um, I I just, I, I agree with your sentiments, though. I see where you're coming from with it, that it seems like there's a lot of filler here. Yeah, I, I story-wise. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's really a better way to explain it, is that it, it does... It's not that it drags or anything. It's just it really is going a whole long way. Um, like I say, if you don't have the explanation of why this is all happening, not not from a story angle, but from a why is the writer telling this particular mm-hmm. story. If you don't have that reference, then I think the the story reads a bit awkwardly because I read the story first and then you know went to the companion so when i initially walked away from the issue i was like wow you know for this being the first uh you know for the for the return of of ordway you know especially him now being penciler and inker 
This is where they're finally getting to the fairgrounds, you know, in the Trilon and the Parasir, an, an era that I'm very excited. You know, the return mm-hmm. of the JSA for all these big things that this issue brought in and my excitement to want to get to this one. I got to the end of the issue and I was kind of like, eh, you know, <laughs> I was like, this wasn't a very good story. And then it was when I read the historical note about why this was all happening. Then I was like, okay, oh, now I get it now. And that's why I'm, I'm asking the question, do you think that somebody that just – you know, somebody just picks up this issue blindly and just reads it. Would they get it, or would they walk away kind of going, "Wow, you know this this big headed guy is really kind of, you know, what's the what the hell's the point?" You know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I'll be curious to see what the what the listeners say about that. Um, what do you got for notes on this one? Uh, I pretty much covered most of them in my oh, okay. little diatribe. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, uh, that's fine. Um. Really like the first page of everyone running up the the street to the uh, the gates of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that two page, uh, almost two page splash of the, um, what is that called? Why can't I remember that? The ramp thing? No, not the ramp. The statues. Oh, the four free. The hopes for peace. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the the. You know, it's been over a year since the fair closed. There's no water in the Lagoon of Nations. Just FDR's four freedoms looking down on an empty pool. And I thought that was really great. I also like the fact that he... I like this opening scene where everyone's kind of talking about where they were when they went to the fair. Or if they went to the fair. Yeah. And that robot man was really interested because it was the dawn of the new day in the world of tomorrow, which says a lot about his character and the kind of depressing part that Hank Haywood Jablomi, um, I'm (laughs) never going to get tired of that joke, you know, was basically either a Marine or, you know, an enemy, you know, a, a, a prisoner of the enemy during that time period. And then they get to the, um, I love the fight with Electro, especially yeah. page seven, that middle panel of Robot Man and Steel both punching him at the same time mm-hmm. just looks freaking money. Uh, I've gushed about page eight. I could probably do it again, but I won't. Um, <laughs> the battle hey, Back sequence- on page eight oh. right there, though... Um- Dr. Fate makes me just a little uncomfortable because I'm not sure he's having the dream that Brainwave uh, <laughs> seems to think that he's having. I'm just saying. And if you look really closely, you can see Wonder Woman's camel toe. Um, just kidding. <laughs> as, as wonky as the dream sequences are, they're beautifully rendered. Oh, yeah. The action is just pretty intense. Well, I've I've got a definite uh, a definite one for you when we get to uh, when I get to my notes as far as the dream sequences. I, I noticed something that I thought was particularly hilarious, but I'll save it. I do like that in this era, the name the Justice Battalion came from a dream sequence that didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool when you think about it because it's a name they would adopt through the course of World War II, and if you read the Who's Who entries which I have several times, you know, they always say, you know, during world war two, the justice society became the justice battalion. The, and I like that idea. I really do. I like the fact that they were part of the war effort as much as they could be, because as much as them being soldiers is awesome and all that, and shows what patriotic individuals they are. 
Come on, they're freaking superheroes. They're mystery men. Their talents are better used in that capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great that Carter Hall is a flying ace. I actually really like that idea. But he needs to be Hawkman. You know, <laughs> Ted Knight doesn't need to be piloting a bomber. He needs to be using the gravity rod for right. uh, things other than sexual gratification. <laughs> um, you know, and the other, okay, you know, admittedly, Dr. Midnight being a medic, you know, he's probably sorely needed on the battlefield. But again, he has very special talents and they are needed elsewhere. So I like that idea. Um, the, um, the death scenes were really cool, cool. And I mean, that as in it, they looked good and they, they were, they evoked an emotion in me, especially the bottom of page 21 where you see Dr. Midnight kind of stumbling around cause his lenses have been shattered as somebody is pointing a gun behind him. And then right behind him, Johnny Thunder is getting a bayonet in the back. I mean, it's just like, holy crap, they're killing these guys. (laughs) Um, I really like the last page, too, of the shot of the JSAers in one of Brainwave's glasses or lenses, and in the other you see the All-Stars. You can really see Jerry Ordway just stretching his legs on this one. Oh, yeah. And just throwing everything he can into the page layouts. Absolutely. And he's still relatively new to the business, and this being such an you know such a dynamic issue art wise, man, it's oh god, he is so talented. Oh yeah, I mean he came out swinging because I'm looking at this, especially the cover to this issue, mm-hmm. and going, here's a guy who is standing toe to toe and will soon work with George Perez, and he is a virtual newcomer to the medium at this point. That's pretty mm-hmm. remarkable. You know, that really mm-hmm. is very remarkable. And I think him and Perez work well together. I think their uh, their styles blend. You can kind of tell the Ordway chins. Right, he yeah. Perez, especially later in Crisis. But it's still not something that looks so different from Perez's own style that you're like, wow, I don't like the what these two working together. So... But we'll be talking about that. Oh, yes. We'll oh, yeah. talking about that. Most definitely. Well, I've got just a few things on this one. Um, one of my my first note, one of my biggest notes, no more Cubic covers. I love that. <laughs> I'm sorry to keep continually busting on Joe Kubert. Like I've said a, a bunch of times, I respect the man greatly, but I just, you know, his his covers on this title did not make me want to pick up the issues. I got them out of obligation because I wanted to complete my run. And, and the stories, you know, contained therein were generally pretty good. It's just, you know, I'm a judge a book by its cover kind of guy. Sorry. And the cover to this, gorgeous, makes you want to buy it. The Return of the Justice Society, and you got all the characters on the cover. It's awesome. I'm going to shell out my 60 cents. Whereas, like, the last one where you had a bunch of scratchy-looking heroes gather on a table as a biker dude fell out of the ceiling, yeah, it didn't really make me want to readily fork over my 60 cents. You know what I'm saying? just didn't do it for me. I find it very ironic that you open the book and the very first thing you see is (laughs) Spider-Man! I just think that's very funny. It's actually on the inside front cover, folks, you got an ad for the uh, Parker Brothers Spider-Man game for the Atari 2600, which was craptacular. 
That yeah, was... you. <laughs> do, 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 do. Swing. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Fall. Swing again. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I've, oh. I played this game at my friend Brian Mangle's house. He had it, and we sat there for hours playing this and pole position. Hmm. Pole position. The arcade game of that. I never played. I don't think I ever played the home edition, but I remember the uh, the arcade edition of uh, of pole position. Um. I don't think it can be said enough. The art in this is absolutely gorgeous. I particularly am a fan of page five, where the all-stars walk into the darkened Parisphere. Firebrand lights her hand up. Yep. And they immediately realize that they almost walked right into the robot. And then the robot comes alive and the wax Johnny Thunder, or excuse me, Johnny Quick, rather, across the room. That Johnny is awesome. That's just a great, great, great piece of art. And I love also the same panel that you pointed out where you've got... Now, I like... This is where we're really starting to see the solidification of the Steel Robot Man team, the uh, Titanium mm-hmm. Twins, where the Titanium Twins take out Electro on page 7. It is just freaking phenomenal. And I am a sucker for this robot. I couldn't tell you why. I just I, I don't normally it, like big clunky style robots, but but Electro's just cool. It, it's what he represents. Yeah, absolutely. It, it absolutely is. And um, I'm sure that we'll 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 talk about this a little bit later. But uh, if you if you want to have an idea for those of you not familiar with him, if you've seen the movie. Um, Batman Mask of the Phantasm Electro right here looks very much like the giant statues that were standing in front of the Gotham World's Fair the ones that the Joker shoots with a machine gun later in the movie looked very much like those uh, what else we got page 8 makes reference to the fact that the captured JSAers are suspended on a machine that used to be the the space where there was uh, the fair had a huge model of a futuristic city. Um, I looked this up and uh, it's really cool. Look that up on on Google. Take a, a look at it. It's really neat. I'm a I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. I'm going to get back to all that in a minute about the models and the future city and the Parisphere, all that sort of thing um, is really going to be my, my biggest note. So I'm going to save all that for last. You know, it's really funny though, that, and I, and I noticed this through reading the issue and I just didn't mention it. How many times and they're like, Hey, it's the JSA and wonder woman. Right. Yeah, I know. They keep mentioning the fact that she's not really a member. Well, she's with them. So yeah, yeah, I know, but they do keep, uh, keep harping on that. Um, Starman's boots are miscolored on page 13. And it got me to thinking about the panel just above that with Hawkman. I thought Hawkman had the pointy hawk-toed boots at this point. Did he not? I don't know. Or did Luke he? Jack and Eddie will tell us. Uh, yeah, he, he should know that. But you know, you know what I mean? Those like bird-footed looking boots? Because, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's... Hawkman seems a little weird and inconsistent, but of course he was very weird and inconsistent in this era too, you know, from one issue to the next of, of his own title and his own appearances, you know, his helmet would change and all that sort of thing. So maybe, uh, maybe they're actually keeping up with that in this title. I have no idea. Um, okay. This was one of my favorite parts of this whole issue. You've got, 
after much exposition, Brainwave finally clues us in to what the hell is going on with the JSAers and what they're uh, dreaming about in their comatose state. And you've got Hawkman, who, of course, because this is Roy Thomas, Hawkman takes front and center as being the, the big old badass in this one. He takes up a machine gun, flies up into the air, and he's shooting down you know Japanese zeros and he's dropping bombs on aircraft carriers and Hawkman's just a major badass he's doing all this damage he's winning the war all by himself in Wonder Woman's mind she's on uh she's in the Philippines she's using palm trees to swat the uh the enemy around and everything knock them all over the place you've got Sandman dreaming that he's in the cockpit of a jet fighter mowing down uh Japanese sailors you've got the Atom using leverage to tip over tanks and blow them up. You've got Dr. Midnight, who's using his body as like a living torpedo and and smashing through all of these uh, Japanese uh, battleships and sinking them. You've got Starman using his gravity rod, and he's shooting down planes left and right. You've got Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt are shooting down Japanese zeros. Everybody's doing their part for the war effort, winning the war pretty much single-handedly. These guys are awesome. And then you got Dr. Midnight. I got a light. All he's doing... Shining a spotlight. I've got so, a rock. Yeah, exactly. You know, so that the so that our guys can see where to shoot at the enemy zeros. That's Doctor Midnight's big war fantasy is to be the guy to shoot the spotlight. You know, shine the spotlight on the enemy. I just got to that. And I was like. Poor fucking Dr. Midnight. He always gets the short end of the stick. (laughs) (laughs) It really just... Oh, man, it cracked me up. Uh, Jumping all the way to the very last page of the issue here, we got uh, page 23, where uh, (laughs) you've got... All right, in Hawkman's mind, a, the specter comes along. The specter blows up to giant specter size, as he sometimes does, snaps Hawkman up into his fist, and then squeezes him until Hawkman dies and throws him down. And Brainwave, who is actually disguised as the specter in Hawkman's mind, says, and the visage of the specter fades to be replaced by the chosen image of the brainwave. And it's a giant brain. And he says, but then... You already anticipated that, did you not? I'm thinking, no, dude. No, I didn't anticipate that at all. Because you're a freaking whack job. I did not (laughs) expect that the giant specter was going to turn into a brain. No, I never saw that coming. You got me. (laughs) Your your faith in us as an audience has been misplaced, sir. (laughs) Exactly. Um. So anyway, my my big thing for this one, and and one of the reasons that this era of the All Star Squadron really, really, really appeals to me is where they're going to uh, start making camp now. And I think this is a good time to talk about uh, the the thirty nine forty World's Fair. I just have a personal fascination with this. You know, this is one of those things. You know, it's it's like the Desert Island question. You know, one of the the big things that people like to talk about. You know, if you could ever time travel, you know, where what kind of things would you like to go see and stuff. You know, definitely on my short list of things that I would love to be able to do if I could ever time travel is I would love to be able to go to both 
the 39 and 40 New York World's Fair and also the 64, 65 World's Fair. And this really began my fascination with all this, you know, learning the history of these things that, you know, were well over and done with by the time, you know, I was a kid in the 80s reading these comics as they were coming out. And I, and they were just – it's a fascinating concept to me. I've always been fascinated by the idea of how people in bygone days predicted the future and what the future would look like and wouldn't it have been interesting, you know, if some of these predictions of the future had come – you know, had come true or been a little bit more fanciful than the way they were imagined. I mean, a lot of the things did come true, but also, you know, anybody living today could tell you, you know, that our our current state is very, very different from the way yeah. people back, you know, in, in the, the 30s or the 40s or the 60s imagined the world of tomorrow. And so I love this. I love this idea of, of going back to these eras and looking at what they thought the future could be and, and that dream. And, you know, the, the 3940 World's Fair was very uh, integral, very inspirational, and uh, also the same site as the 6465 World's Fair. Now, the 6465 World's Fair, of course, had four major pavilions there that were testing grounds for Walt Disney to basically test the theory of would East Coasters go for basically an East Coast version of Disneyland, which, you know, at that time there was only one Disney park. It was Disneyland in California. And out of that came a lot of attractions and a lot of things that he invented, one of which was the Carousel of Progress. Now, the Carousel of Progress had a, at its conclusion – a city of tomorrow that you could go and you could look at and you could examine. And it was uh, it was a progress city is what it was called. And it was a projection of this is how we're going to live in the future. Very much like, you know, the same uh, Democrat. Uh, how did they pronounce it? Democrat city. Yeah. Democrat city, I guess, is how it would be pronounced. The, the name of the future city that was modeled in the thirty nine forty World's Fair. Of course, Progress City led to Walt Disney's idea of a real, working, livable city of the future, which was Epcot. Not Epcot, the theme park as we have today, but the idea in his own mind of a, of a, of a city of the future. Very much came out of this World's Fair idea, you know, and it got him to thinking about these types of things. And of course... The Epcot that we eventually got, the Epcot Center and Epcot as it exists today, what is the symbol of that park? Spaceship Earth, a giant ball, you know, a, a geodesic sphere, uh -huh. very reminiscent in my mind at least, and I'm sure to other people too, of the Perisphere from the 3940 World's Fair. So it may seem like a bit of a stretch, but it really isn't. All of this stuff is very, very, very tied together historically there's a lot of common threads through all of this visioning of the future and i like that because it ties into both my personal fascination and enjoyment of these things but also now well you know very luckily you know i'm, I'm truly blessed this is where i work now you know so that it's it's that extra <laughs> attachment to me 
that I spend a significant portion of my week at Epcot, you know, so it's great. I love this. And it all ties back to my love of the Justice Society. And so in a weird sort of way, you could also you could almost make a case that my love for Epcot really got its start with the All-Star Squadron. It's very weird, but it's also it's it's pretty true. It is very true because I'm almost positive that prior to uh, to ever reading any issues of All-Star Squadron, I don't think I'd ever heard of, you know, the New York World's Fair, any of them, you know, or the Parisphere or the, or the Trilon. I mean, this wasn't stuff they taught in school. I think it's cool. I think it's important and, you know, interesting and all that. But I had no idea. And as I've said before, I, I can't remember exactly what issue of All-Star Squadron I came into, but I know it was well beyond this point where they were already established in their new headquarters. So, you know, picking up my first issue of this series and diving in, I was instantly fascinated. You know, what is this headquarters? You know, the the JLA had a space satellite. You know, these guys were in a place that at least... 23,000 miles in geosynchronous yeah, orbit, orbit exactly. around the Earth. You know, but something that um, at that time didn't really exist in the real world. Now, today, of course, you know, we, we actually have space stations. At that time, that was still science fiction. Well, Skylab. Well, yeah, that's true. I kind of forgot about that. But, but you know, I mean, the All-Stars, here they were, they were actually living and operating out of something that, at least at one time in our past, was a real thing, really existed. I like that sort of thing. I'm, I'm always interested. You know, I... I never actually made it to New York City when I when I lived in New York, which was a real shame. But if I had ever made it there, the first thing I would have been doing was looking around for, okay, where's the Baxter building? Where's uh, Avengers Mansion? You know, where's the <laughs> Daily Bugle? Things that don't really exist. Here was a superhero team that I was really fascinated with and loved their adventures and loved the characters. And the place that they operated out of really existed. You know, I mean, that, there's, a, there's a really strong uh, pull you know, a really strong interest to, to want to learn more about that, at least for me. You know what I mean? It, it, it really sucked me in as a kid and, and really began a, a fascination with this whole thing. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now because I've gone on long enough about this. But I would, I would definitely encourage anybody that's interested in, you know, the, especially, you know, the, the JSA, the All-Star Squadron, science fiction and projections of the future, that sort of thing. Um, I'm sure you can find all kinds of stuff on, on YouTube and the internet and things about these world's fairs. They were awesome. They were really cool ideas. And sadly, something that doesn't really exist anymore, except maybe someplace like Epcot, which sort of is kind of a, a, a living world's fair in sort of the spirit of these things. So, yeah. You know, you know I kind of feel bad because you just – delivered all this great information you did it in a very entertaining engaging manner i'm sitting there kind of like on the edge of my seat almost as you're like going through how this fit into that fit into that but in the back of my mind i'm like okay this is any minute now he's going to he's going to reveal that this is the point where walt hooked up with the aliens and started with the advanced technology and stuff like that (laughs) not this time that's for next episode and not in a bad way, just not like not like making fun of you or your love for Disney. It's just the way you were talking about it is like, well, that was the test ground for, you know, basically suggesting that 
the the setup at the World's Fair in 64 and 65 was the the beta testing for Disney World essentially yes uh, yeah very much East so Coast. so i'm like okay where this is where the government comes in and and the cyborgs are created or something <laughs> like that <laughs> i think you're confusing so. me with the other co-host of the two true freaks podcast <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. No, just great issue, though. Um, See, I was almost hesitant to bring that up because, I, you know, I, the last thing I want to do is, is 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 start to put people off from listening to me as a, as a podcaster because I know that I, I do frequently bring up the Disney thing. I mean, you know, I work for them and I'm fascinated, you know, with the whole thing. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. But in this case... This isn't just me projecting. I mean, this really does have strong yeah. ties, you know, and, and that's why I was trying to make a case for it you know, beyond just bringing my own. You know, I, I'm trying not to project so much as really make a case for, no, these things really do have historical threads and ties to each other. So I, I just I, I really no. think that's neat. Because there is a certain there is a certain part of me that I, I look at Spaceship Earth and I see the perisphere, you know. I, I definitely see where where one begat the other. You know what I mean? Yes. And uh, and I, I know that you and I plan to do thorough talk on this subject later, so I don't want to uh, divert us uh, into a big tangent. But one of my big geek outs in uh, in the new Captain America movie, which, by the way, I know this is a JSA podcast, but folks, if you like this historical stuff that we're covering, yep. get out there and watch Captain America. Man, it was a good movie. But m probably my favorite part of the whole movie was when Steve Rogers went to the World's Fair because it was like, yes, you know, it was this. It was it was the New York World's Fair. And it was just, you know, it was a very fictionalized version, but it was still very true to the feel and the scope. And this is what the future, you know, the future is going to be from a, a, a 40s perspective. And it, I got I'm, I'm such a sucker for that. stuff. I really loved it. And of course, I seriously geeked out when the monorail went by, too. That was pretty awesome. But uh, anyway, I'll save that for when we do our big uh, Captain America talk. But definitely, I mean, if you like historical fiction of this sort, yeah, definitely uh, check out the Captain America flick because it was good stuff. But that's all I got as far as the issue itself. Um, I dug more of the historical elements of the story than the story itself. Um, and, of course, loved the art. Yeah, I, it was really the art that was the main reason I liked it. I mean, the story's the story's good. It's it's engaging. It's not like oh well, because I'm not really one of those people that will love the art so much that if the story sucks, I, you know, I'll be like, well, it doesn't matter. Because to me, it does. Because mm -hmm. that is the that is the medium in which we are reading about. You know, it's not all about the writing and it's not all about the art. Sometimes the writing can be good enough that you can overlook problems with the art. Right. Sometimes the art is so good that even if the story has some elements that are like, wow, this is going on too long, you know, you're still like, but but at least I get to see the art. So, Which, which is stronger? As a fan, which, do you, uh, which works better for you? a really strong story with crappy art or really great art with a crappy story? Which are you more forgiving of? The former. Because if you engage me as a reader, 
I'll pretty much forgive a lot. Okay. But if you, if you, if I'm reading something and I'm like, God, this is dumb. You know, you could have George Perez art all over that thing or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez or Rick Buckler or, or Jerry Ordway. And I'm going to be like, wow, it's pretty to look at, but uh, this book just isn't any good. So this one rides that line finely, but it, 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 it doesn't teeter either way. So. Because I'm not, I'm not sure how I would answer that that question myself. I, definitely, when I was younger, like when when I would have been the age, you know, when this was coming out in the '80s, you know, as, as a as a kid reading comics, I was very much an art guy. You know, if it if it had crappy art, you know, if it was your, you know, not to be disparaging, but if it was you know your Don Heck or your Vinnie Coletta or something like that, then I was more than likely going to go. Nah, I don't think I need to read that. Whereas now. You know, I'm not saying, uh, well, I've matured and I'm so much more blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that. It's just, I, you know, I've read plenty of books where I thought the art was kind of crap, but the, the, the writing was so engaging and the storytelling was so good that it kind of carried me through. So, yeah, I'm not sure how exactly I would answer that question. I, I'd like to think I'm more of a writing versus an art guy, but still, I mean – I, I, I still have that that stumbling block of it's harder for me to pick up an issue where I'm not digging the art rate out of the gate. You know what I mean? They kind of kind of win me over with a great story first. I think that's one of the reasons I was never a big indie guy because you know, forgive me indie fans, but I think a lot of indie comics suffer from terrible art. You know? Yeah, but yeah. But anyway. What do we well, want to we, do next? Well, we got the ads. We were talking about the oh, Spider-Man yeah. ad. Um, I actually have this cartridge. I picked it up for, I don't know, like a quarter or something a couple of years ago. And I never played it. I just got it just because, you know, it was cheap and it was a superhero-related collectible. So I snapped it up. But. Yeah, out in the house, uh, out in our little storage shed, I have the Nintendo game. This, the Nintendo Superman game cartridge. Oh, that was a terrible game. Yeah, I never got to play it because uh, Sears constantly lied to me. Um, <laughs> they always had it in the catalog. They never had it in stock. Uh, we got the bu- the bubble yum behind the candy counter that we talked about last time. Uh, hmm. A little half-page ad of comic book conventions in New York City, L.A., Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and Boston. The uh, with a picture of the of the like sixties era lizard, which is <laughs> kind of weird. Nom 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 nom. <laughs> what are we, are we playing, Pac Man? That's what he looks uh, like. He's doing though. <laughs> the adventure is yours with Dungeons and Dragons fantasy adventure game. I this ad was all over the place in '83. This particular version of it, and the artwork really isn't getting any better in these ads. <laughs> unfortunately, don't. don't play it. It's got the devil in it. <laughs> well, if my gym teacher hadn't made me feel bad, maybe I wouldn't have. <laughs> got that Lifesavers world word jumble. We got the Remco Sergeant Rock. Yeah, a lot of the ads are the same month after yeah, month for some yeah, reason. Yeah, they are. Um, got another Meanwhile column, which is always nice to see. Uh, he tells us about, uh, Dick Giordano tells us about Camelot 3000. And let me tell you about how uninterested I am in Camelot 3000. Not because it's Arthurian, I just didn't like the story. It had pretty art. I just, there's a perfect example. Brian Boland's art was gorgeous. I just didn't care for the story, therefore I don't like the book. So there, exhibit A. 
the <laughs> the All Star comments is made up of a message from Roy Thomas and then Jerry Ordway giving kind of how he broke into the uh, the industry. And if you want to hear some of this, uh, go to and I'm going to kind of stump. <laughs> Vamp for me, vamp. An episode of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast that Jeffrey Taylor and I do through the Superman homepage. Because we have interviewed Jerry on two occasions. Once by himself over two episodes. And then once with Dan Jurgens, which was really cool to kind of get two of them talking at once, basically. But the episode... Episode 32, which is the first part of the uh, of the interview, he really gives kind of his history and how he broke into the industry. And uh, All-Star Squadron played a very, very big part of that. So, And he even draws a... Uh, does a little self-portrait of himself, and he is rocking that mustache. <laughs> he would keep that mustache for years. Blah, uh, we've got blah, a coming... Blah. I'm friends with Jerry Ordway. Blah, blah, blah. I'm friends with Ray Tommy. We had Luke Giaconetti on our show. Luke is awesome. Even <laughs> though sorry, next time, <laughs> even though next time we're going to talk about that email where he rips into you pretty hardcore. Uh-oh, uh oh, does he? <laughs> you didn't read that? Uh, uh, we'll read know. it next Maybe time. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> um, he takes issue with your opinions about Hawkman. Uh oh. <laughs> That's okay. He 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 calls me on something, which I think we're going to get into in an email this time. So, um, we've got a coming comics page, which DC would start putting out around now. But we're going to be talking all about these in the elsewhere uh, yeah. section. So I'm going to skip over that. Got the Magnum PI model. Is that like a real model kit, or is it that model kit your dad hated? Uh, I went and my my issue back in the back. Is it snap tight or is it an actual model? Because um, it was it was a snap together ones. Is the ones he could not. Let's see here. What do we got? We got. Doesn't say snap tight at all. No, this is a real model kit. Okay, that's a real one. Yeah, it's it's those snap tight ones that he didn't like because they were you know they were snap together. You know they didn't require any skill. You know he didn't have to glue anything or paint anything or oh, I guess you could paint them, but. You know, they were pretty much, you know, it was, it was a, you know, your own assembly kind of toy. It was a toy, you know, you you put it together and then you played with it. Whereas a model is, you know, it's a model. You you build it and paint it and glue it together and it sits on a shelf and you yell at other people not to touch it. Sometimes you hang it from the ceiling. <laughs> Sometimes you blow it up with firecrackers. Or douse it in gasoline. <laughs> Still kind of curious about how you and Chris didn't blow each other up. I don't know how I never set myself on fire as a kid. I really, that really is. I tell you what, my guardian angel worked some serious OT <laughs> back in the day. Is all I'm saying. Well, I guess that kind of leads us to Mike's amazing world of DC comics at dcindexes.com via the time machine. So well, it we does talk. if you send me that link. Um, I thought maybe you would do some work yourself this time. Nah, I can't Ooh. be. I can't be bothered to do that. Not Mike, that. Mike, Mike, <laughs> you've known me for how long? Almost exactly. two years, actually. Which? We're coming up on our two-year anniversary. Aww. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, that <laughs> Nothing was creepy. Happened. That was, uh, move along, move along. 
awkward. <laughs> exactly. It's like that first time your best friend French kisses you and you're just like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Would you do it all over again, sweetheart? <laughs> all right. What do we got here? Ooh, who is Superboy battling on the cover of... Is that Ultraman? Ooh, Ultra Boy. Cool. Yeah. Ooh. Again, I have never seen this cover. That's uh, Gil Kane. Is it? Yeah, it is Gil Kane. Ooh, I got to track that down. I like that cover. I like Ultra Boy. He's wacky. Because he's the, the superhero that could only use one superpower at a time. He's basically God. Superboy if Superboy could only do one thing at a time, which I don't Thank God he had the flight ring. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Gorgeous cover to both Fury of Firestorm 10 and Justice League of America 212. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Batman 357. Folks, this is a double-barreled first appearance. First, you have the first appearance of Croc, who would become known as Killer Croc. And you also have the very first appearance of Jason Todd, who, in this issue, has no dialogue, appears in only two panels, and has red hair. This also, I don't know if it's his first appearance, but this had a a villain who I also kind of liked, who was the Squid. This was his second appearance. And I, I like that issue because it was uh, that was one of the first Don Newton issues of Batman I ever got, I do believe. And I really, really liked the art in that one. It's, it's one of the issues that made me a Don Newton Batman fan. I think that's a Frank Miller. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not either. It's a uh, Ed Hannigan cover. Yeah, on, Hannigan uh, did like all of the Batman covers at this point. Yeah, I was looking at the uh, the Wonder Woman because that last Wonder Woman cover with the skeletal Wonder Woman was a Frank Miller, so I thought this one might be too because it's actually Wonder Woman battling a skeletal Wonder Woman, but no, it's actually a Ed Hannigan cover. DC Comics number fifty five has Superman teaming up with Airwave. This is one of those comics I had as a kid, and I read it again and again and again, and it made me actually like Airwave a lot. And it's also, I think, this is the one where I learned about. Gold kryptonite for the first time. So oh, really? Reference to it. So, um, nice Teen Titans cover with Speedy trying to shoot the Brotherhood of Evil. Oh yeah. See, I like the cover on that DC Comics present. What's funny is uh, Alex Saviak is probably best known for his very long run on Web of Spider-Man. But what's funny yeah. is I never liked uh, Saviak's Spider-Man. Yeah, I really like his Superman. Isn't that odd? I like Savvy Spider-Man. I never... I, 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 I like Ross Andrews' Spider-Man better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they had kind of somewhat similar styles, if I'm thinking of the, 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 the right artist. But uh, Ross Andrews is a shockingly underrated artist, uh, just in general to me. I like his work a lot. And he did a lot of covers for DC in the 70s and 80s. The uh, all the Superman covers are Gil Kane, and that bugs me. Oh, dude, I was just gonna say how awesome these are too. I really like the some ones. of them are good. Yeah, Superman three eighty one, where he's actually plunging through the time thing into the okay. future. That's cool. Yeah, but that Superman special cover sucks. I don't like the villain in the background, but I do like I like how Superman looks because he's like, I'm going to kick your ass. I like that cover. But, the yeah, the, the villain's like, 
I don't know what the hell he is. He's like if you if you, you know, it's like the weird brainchild of like Fu Manchu and uh Simon or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he's he's freaky looking. But uh, I really like the cover of uh Saga the Swamp Thing number 11 where he's battling the golem because mm-hmm. while that wasn't a very good storyline, that particular issue is actually a pretty good issue where uh where uh, one of the Jewish characters brings to life an actual Jewish golem, and uh, and Swamp you guys Thing. talking about that? Yeah, it was uh, that wasn't 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 too bad. And I've always always dug this cover. Who the hell is the penciler on this? Ah, Ed Hannigan again. This cover to uh, the daring new adventures of Supergirl number five, where she's falling into a spirograph design. I always thought that was really cool. Yep, the uh, Legion of Superheroes cover is pretty cool. Of Cosmic Boy using his yeah. uh, using his powers. I will say I like the action cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's kind of cool. Um, is that the resolution of that story? I think it is. Yeah, I think so too. Fact. It's been so long since I've read those issues. The I'm going to jump ahead real quick just to get it out of the way. Uh-huh. That issue of World's Finest is creepy as hell. What happens in that one? Uh. Batman kind of screws up at the beginning and somebody dies and Superman's feeling kind of bad. So Batman's like, I need to talk to you. I need to be alone with you, Superman. Okay, Batman, let's go to the Fortress of Solitude. And I'm just like, any minute now, this is going to turn into slash fiction. Any (laughs) minute now, this is going to turn into slash fiction. They hold hands, looking into each other's eyes. I mean, this this is like the narration. I'm not kidding. I'm not... I have the issue right here, as a matter of fact. Let me read to you from from this issue. I'm hearing that Getting Gay with Kids is Here song from South Park in my head. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where How is, is the art in this? Because it says it's Adrian Gonzalez and Sal Trapani, artists who I both like. Is that a... It's, um, a- it's good in places, bad in the other. Um, Superman, I was just about to use my JLA signal to contact you. Yes, Somehow I knew. You knew, but how could you? I suspect, friend, that we could both use some solitude. (laughs) But I think, too, that it would be better if neither of us spent this night alone. You'll get no argument from this quarter, Superman. And since I'm hardly in the mood for the company of drafts and bats, let's go. And then, when they're in the fortress, and Superman is putting the giant key in the door... An evening here will do us good. I think especially in view how we've grown closer these past few months. True, I feel we can now discuss almost anything with each other. And since we each sense trouble in the other, why not we share the burdens? You start, Batman. I'm like, oh God, where is this story going? I need to be held. (laughs) Hey, I think I actually have this best of DC 34 with the with the Metal Men now that I look at it. That's actually pretty cool. I read a Metal Men story the other day, and I have to rescind some of the stuff I said. I I still – I hate to say it. I'm still kind of a sucker for the Metal Men. I liked him when I was a kid, and just through the sheer friggin' wackiness of the story that I read, I actually kind of got a, a, a kick out of the Metal Men story I read recently. That's fair. The uh, The Detective Comics issue – yeah. is really cool. It's the second appearance of Jason Todd. It's the final confrontation between Batman and the squid, and the ending hit me like a ton of bricks when I when I read it. 
and it's got this great cover mm-hmm. of the squid who 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 had the speech impediment. Yeah, and he 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 he's very. He puts a lot of W's in things. Yeah, I, I heard him very much as Elmer Fudd when I read the the dialogue. Uh, it's also Don Newton. So Don Newton was actually mm-hmm. doing both books, which is yep. pretty cool. Um, I, those pants that he's wearing, by the way. Um, <laughs> I hate to say this. My mother sent me to my first day of school when we moved <laughs> to Allentown in pants very similar to those. They were purple and black checkered jeans with a white shirt, a white button down, and suspenders. She had it in for me. I swear to God, the woman wanted me to die my first day. I was just going to say, she she loved you, right? <laughs> we got a lot of really good covers this month, because mm-hmm. I, I love this one on Green Lantern, where he's okay. looking out the window of the spaceship, and the dude's about to pop from decompression out in space, and Green Lantern's going, but it's my damn lunch break! I love that. <laughs> it's awesome. And uh, I really, really... you got to blow it up so you can see it real good, but I love this cover on the new adventures of Superboy. It's Christmas time. Superboy's flying over the streets of, I presume, Smallville, and somebody's pelting him with a snowball right in the head, and he's about to kick their ass. It's great. He's just got a look on his face like, oh, you have just screwed with the wrong Superboy today. That's awesome. Look at him. He looks maniacal, yes. doesn't he? Oh, i got to rip your head off. Yeah, I just got a Dial H for Hero back up, and let me tell you how much of a crap I give about Dial H yeah, for Hero. Yeah, I-, I agree with you. There, there was an article. This is what I love. I really do love this about uh, Back Issue Magazine. They can take the worst shit that ever came out <laughs> and make it sound like you have got to read this. Your life depends on how awesome this book was. And they had this huge article. And I read every word of it, of, of Dial H for Hero. Got to the end of it, and I was like, yeah, you know, that actually sounds like it would be pretty good. And then I was like, no, 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 no. I've read Dial H for Hero, and it sucked hard. But it's amazing how these guys, I don't know if it's just because they're really passionate about the particular thing. They're I think that's about, it. But I think that's it exactly. It's it's hysterical. I don't know how many things I have read about in Back Issue that are comics that I have passed on all my life in like quarter bins or 50 cent bins and then I read about it there, and it, it makes me regret that I didn't, you know, like, you know, the life and times of Pope John Paul and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, ooh, that actually sounds exciting. And I'm like, wow, am I? What's wrong with? Me? I had a, uh, I had a similar feeling when I lis- when I used to listen to the podcast Two and One Showcase with Blake and Chase because mm-hmm. they would talk about stuff I didn't care. They did a whole episode about Archie that made me go, wow, man, I really got to check out some Archie. So I was in Publix a few days later, and I sat there and read an issue of Archie and went, wow, no, no, I'm good. No, really, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm good. Uh, I'm glad you guys like it, but, yeah, this isn't for me at all. <laughs> Though you know who is doing artwork for Archie now? Because they have, like, that new look thing? Norm Brayfogel. No way, really? Yeah, that's where he's doing the majority of his work these days. Well, it's also where, um, um, oh my God, am I really going to draw a blank on this? Um, Paul Schaffenberger. Mm-hmm. 
uh, is doing work. Uh, Paul Kurt Schaffenberger? Or no, Paul no, 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 Kupperberg, that's it. Paul okay. Oh, my God, it's late, and I'm just getting stupid. <laughs> that's it, Paul Kupperberg. I was like, yeah, I, I knew that wasn't right, yeah. Yeah, we, we talked to him a while back on, uh, what is that? It was, strangely, it was on Star Trek Monthly Monday, and then we ended up talking about everything but Star Trek. But it was a great interview, and uh, that's uh, where he's actually doing a lot of his stuff. This is like our all-plugs episode, have you noticed? <laughs> you need to listen to everything else we do. <laughs> No, seriously, you do. Lastly, I got to eat just a little bit of crow about what I've been saying about the Ross Andrew covers on Jonah Hex because I like this one. He's shooting him some Indians, and yeah, I he's, dig this cover. He's got a blonde who's about to help him Mm-hmm. on a horse. Like, yeah, yeah. it's uh, Jonah Hex and Annie Oakley versus the... Uh, the She's Indian. got some nice meaty thighs to her as well. Oh, yeah, she does. So she... So you know she's all woman? She's got them birthing hips. <laughs> <laughs> I've led an interesting life. Yeah, just uh, yeah. the addendum to that world's finest thing is that cover sucks. Ah. <laughs> I don't like it. I'm sorry. It's a boring cover. Now, I will agree with you. I don't think the coloring is very good on that, but... I like how that's like a classic Superman. How can you not like that Superman on that cover? Because it looks like he's trying to do Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and failing. I don't know. I'm sorry. We're going to have to agree to disagree. Okay. It's I mean, not that's fine. a dynamic cover. And it really what I wish this, I wish it was just Superman flying over the city, right? They take Batman right out of the background. Cause he looks, it's it's weird that it's like a giant Batman and then like a tiny little Superman. But I love how Superman looks right there. I, I like Kane's Superman. I'm not the biggest Gil Kane fan in the world. I, I think he's hit and miss depending. He, he, Gil Kane to me is very much in the same – I look at him in the same way I look at um, um, Carmine Infantino. Is like I like them on particular products. It's like I can look at one thing they do and go, "Wow, that's awesome!" And then the very next book they do, go, "Ooh, I don't like that at all." Like Infantino's Flash, I never liked it. It's probably the thing he was most famous for was his Flash stuff. Arguably, never liked any of it. I, I couldn't stand it. Yet I really liked his stuff on, say, like Star Wars or Nova and things like that. Gil Kane's the same way. I look at uh, uh, Gil Kane's Superman and just love it. I look at a lot of other Gil Kane stuff and I'm like, you know? Okay. My feelings for Gil Kane are very much colored by the issues of Superman he drew in 1995 mm-hmm. that I just didn't care for. I didn't like the way they looked. So that's my. Yeah, he he was drawing he in, Superman. What did he do in ninety? I can't. I don't remember. What was that? He drew he drew that Captain Marvel team up issue where Superman and the Kents and Lois Lane were in a Winnebago and they passed by Fawcett City and he gets sucked out and he Superman thinks he's fighting. I think Conduit and Captain Marvel thinks he's fighting Black Adam. And he drew yeah, an I, Liberty story. And they just, they didn't appeal to me. So when I read, like, older Gil Kane Superman, a lot of those preconceptions are still there. I can see that. So, is it fair? Not necessarily, but what I have come to accept about myself is that sometimes 
you feel you feel the way you feel about something. Right. You know, and you can, you know, if you sit there and try to fight it eventually, especially me, if I try to fight it, eventually it's going to come, it's going to rubber band back and I'm going to hate it. So I might as well just go, okay, this isn't my cup of tea. I see where this is good. I just don't like it. And that's fine. You know, a lot of people like caviar. I don't think I'd ever want to eat it. It's apparently a very good and uh, food, but it's not for me. You know, it's like, I'm the weird guy that likes a burger over a steak. So even though the steak is supposed to be the better cut of meat, I like steak. I just like it being ground up and fried with a piece of cheese on top, preferably a pickle, some ketchup. <laughs> I'm getting hungry again. Oh, and thank you for making me hungry and listening to episode 200 of Two True Freaks. <laughs> chips and queso. Thank you. I appreciate that, sir. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm sitting here starving to death as we talk. <laughs> I have nothing to snack on. Well, what else uh, we got for this one? Did, you said you wanted to wait till next time for, for letters. No, right? the Lu- no, 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 no. We have, we have some emails for this time. Oh, okay. Email from Luke would be one we would read next time. Ah, I gotcha. In. Gotcha. I, I am kind of excited about this email because it's one of the first. It's not the first, but it's one of the first we got after we came back the second time. <gasps> Ooh! This is from June twenty fifth, so it's it's not like it's not like we're reading emails from last summer anymore. It's from Stan Johnston. It says, "Love the new podcast." Hi, guys. Wow, I've been waiting for someone to start a new podcast that covers the Justice Society, and here you are. There used to be one, but rumor has it that the two ass clowns who did it got arrested for trying to con some little old lady out of her mint copy of Action Comics number one and haven't been heard from in months. (laughs) So it's nice to see that someone has picked up the torch. Funny how you two sound so much like them and have their exact same names, though. (laughs) But seriously, it's great to have you back doing new episodes of Tales, and your decision to put the show on hiatus until Scott was able to make time for it was the right one. And Scott, I really do know how to spell your name. I have a cousin named Scott with one T, so that's how I tend to spell it most of the time, unless I stop and think about it. And as my wife will tell you, I I hardly ever stop and think. Also, the annotated infamy speech that I mentioned way back last summer, Dig Dig, can be found here, and he has a link. Subsequent searching satisfy my own curiosity turned up this page, which includes not just the first page, but the entire speech. And it's very interesting to see the changes that President Roosevelt made. So I've got a couple links there that I will hopefully remember to throw into the show notes. Uh, that's it for now. Got all got all kinds of crap to do with the rest of my Saturday. Thanks to this nice list my wife made for me. Just think, without this list, I'd waste my day reading old comics or something. Stan, you know, speaking of uh, the thing with the with notes in the in the show, uh, you know, links in the show notes and all that. You know how many episodes, back episodes of this show I've listened to, and I've heard myself say, "Yeah, and I'll throw something up in the show notes," but I never, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I've done it one time ever. So I want to deeply apologize to the listeners, and I promise that from here on out, I won't say that anymore because I know that I won't follow through on it. So sorry about that. 
Um, the best I can do is that, you know, as I catch myself, or if you guys catch that in, in episode, remind me of it. And what I'll do is I'll go. We do have a forum, which we hardly ever mention in, in regards to Tales of the JSA. But if you go to forumforgeeks.com, um, Two True Freaks has a sub forum there. And in that sub forum, there is a thread for this show, Tales of the JSA. Please feel free. Go in there and uh, and post and talk about the shows. If you guys remind me of some of these things that I have promised that I would put in the show notes and then I never did, I will really, really try my best to post that stuff in that thread. So remind me. One of the things I know of, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head, is those uh, Superman vitamin cards that I mentioned a while back. I really did intend to scan those and post pictures because I think the art's beautiful. I just never got around to it. But if you remind me and keep on me about it and, you, you know, there's enough interest, I will actually get off my lazy ass and get those things scanned and posted up there so you all can see them. But sorry about that, guys. I just kind of suck about that sort of thing sometimes. So do I. All right. Do we want to do this next one? Sure. All right, the next one is entitled simply Tales number 49. This one is from Devin Clancy. Oh, I like his voice work. Uh, no, that would be Clancy Brown. Never mind. Anyway, hey, guys. I heard you read my email on the most recent Tales of the JSA and just happened to be looking at Mike's Facebook update just as he addressed me directly in the podcast. It took effort not to uh, reply directly to my computer in the middle of my office. Uh, to answer your question, I am a guy. Usually this spelling of my name is for guys, and Devon, D-E-V-O-N, is for women. But there's obviously some variation. According to Wikipedia, the comics creator Devon Grayson isn't actually using her original name. So I guess when you're picking a new name, you can spell it any way you want. And she became a published comics writer a few years before I became a published sports writer. So I guess I can't really argue if people think I'm a chick. Uh, I live in northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. The 25-cent uh, comics I discovered were not at a comic store, but actually from a nonprofit used bookstore in Fairfax. They got a donation of about 3,000 comics from about 1980 to 1998 and put an ad up on Craigslist selling them for a quarter each. See, this is what I fear is going to happen to me when I die. This is exactly <laughs> what's going to happen to my collection right here. It scares the shit out of me. So I just, I can't die. I can't afford to. Anyway, I'm sorry. Continuing with, uh, Devin, uh, he says, uh, I gladly uh, took about $180. Oh, holy cow. The look on my face of my event... The look, I'm sorry, the look on the face of my then fiance was priceless as I carted five long boxes into the house. The best part of that find was picking up all the All-Star Squadron and most of the Infinity Incorporated stuff for your show. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Specifically for our show? If that's what you mean, wow, I'm, wow, I'm, thank you. I'm touched. I'm honored. I hope it lives up to the hype. <laughs> hope that nonprofit store gives us a kickback. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah, we want our cut. Uh, but I also had the chance to read a ton of Firestorm, Suicide Squad, and other stuff for the first time. And I have combined that purchase with my own collection to open an online comic store. And you can find that at Black Cat 
Well, actually, let me click that link and make sure that that's where yep. it goes. Is that where it goes? Black Cat Comics Online? Is that how you... Yeah, it, it's part of ComicCollectorLive.com. Yeah, there we go. Cool. There we go. We plugged you. Again, you owe us a kickback. Uh, and that helped pay for our wedding. Oh, heck, awesome. Congrats. Oh, he's got a lot of nice issues of action. I, I'm going to have to go check that. I'm going to bookmark that right now while I'm yeah, thinking about it. You too. can actually hear me clicking it. Click, click, click. Normally, click, I yeah. hate that in podcasts, but I want you to actually hear my clicks this time. All right. Uh, where am I? Okay. I ag- agree completely with Scott's hatred of the ending of every per Degaton story. Actually, that's going to come up as an issue next time around. Just spoiler. Um, but I know I used to enjoy uh, with that kind of time travel story. Uh, I'm sorry. I think I misread that. But I... But I know I used to enjoy with that kind of time travel story in other fiction. I think that's missing a word somewhere, or I read it wrong. It's late and I'm sleepy. Um, I guess it's been so overused as a plot device in more recent stories that it looks sillier in retrospect. Um, see, it's not that I think it's silly or anything. It's that it just it's irritating. That's my problem with it. I I don't think it's silly. I, I mean. That's how I expect time travel probably would really work, you know, Mm -hmm. that if you change things, then, well, they change and everybody just kind of forgets about the thing that happened that has now not ever happened. But that's my freaking problem with Perdegasan stories. They all seem to end the exact same way where none of the adventure ever really happened. It just it's irritating and it just it gets old. It, it, It feels like. You're getting more or less the same story every time. You know, the details may change. The plot the villain's doing may change. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the same story over and over and over again, you know? Um, Anyway, I'm sorry. We've bitched about that enough, so I'll continue. I can think of at least three uh, modern Star Trek episodes that ended exactly the same way. And I'm sure there are a ton of other examples. Yeah, Star Trek's a good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> like a lot. Yeah, especially the latter series, you know, the you know, next gen onward. Maybe it seemed more clever at the time than it does now. Well, yeah, it's definitely been used and reused and overused much more, you know, beyond nineteen eighty-three. When you get the time uh when you get to the time when the All-Star Squadron, Infinity Inc., and America versus the JSA are coming out at the same time, will you continue to do one issue, an episode, or talk about all the comics from a particular month? I think that's when we're going to stop the show because I, I just – I won't be able to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No, actually, I don't know that we've ever actually – what are, we have talked about it. Have we? Um, yeah, see, I don't remember anything. We, we have two choices, folks, and I'm opening it up to the listeners to help us decide how we're going to do this. We can either do one episode, like the even episodes about All-Star Squadron and the odd episodes about Infinity Incorporated. What that's going to do is slow down the progress, the forward progress of the show, and make it almost bi-weekly. Though, even though it's going to be a weekly podcast... We're going to be talking about one month in two weeks, kind of like what Jeffrey and I are doing at From Crisis to Crisis right now. Mm-hmm. Or we can make the episodes a little bit longer and do All-Star and then halfway through the episode switch over to Infinity Incorporated. There are pros and cons to both of them. To me, the pro of keeping it one episode is that we're, you know, you know we're keeping that one month a week. That way we get to crisis faster. Right. But. I, I, 
I'm sorry, go ahead. That leads to some long ass episodes. Yeah, that. See, that's the thing. My, my first inclination is to say, you know, if I had my druthers, the way I would like to do it is that um, we would do. Basically, we would do two recordings every time we sat down. We would do an issue of All-Star would be one episode. An issue of Infinity, Inc. would be another episode that would come out at the same time, you know, same month. Or, or I'm sorry, same week, rather. And then America versus the JSA, I think that's easier just to tackle that as one episode. All yeah, four, four issues that. in just one shot, get it out of the way. You know, I'm not, not, I'm not saying anything disparaging. I'm just saying, you know, that would cover it. You know what I mean? And, and it's done. Boom. Um the problem with that, as you said, that creates very long episodes. And as you and I were discussing before we started recording, um, you know, in theory, the idea of every time we set down, we record All-Star Squadron and another episode of a different show that we do together. That was working for a while in theory, and then it just sort of stopped working. So I would kind of be afraid that the same thing might happen with All-Star Squadron and, and Infinity, Inc. Because, I mean, you know, just to give you guys a peek behind the curtain, you know, when Mike and I sat down tonight, our intention tonight is to record two episodes. Now, as I look at the clock, I don't know about yeah. Mike, but I'm not sure that that second episode is going to happen tonight. Probably so, not, but not in a bad way. Not like, oh, right. God, we're not going to get it done. This sucks. It's just... This episode took a little longer than we thought it would. But, you know, you and I... It's fine. Yeah, it is fine, because you and I both agree that, you know, when things are rolling and we're having a good time, we're having fun, I don't like to rein us in. Maybe that's the no. problem with uh, with the both of us, is neither one of us wants to rein, our, you know, ourselves or the other one in, because we, we enjoy talking to each other, we enjoy doing the show, and usually the, the conversation is going very well. At the same rate, I'd like to hear from the listeners, how's the length for you guys? I mean, are you guys cool with all this, or would you like us to be a little more, you know, you guys let us know what you want. So far, I haven't heard any complaints. As long as I don't hear complaints, I feel like you're, you're all right with how long the shows go. But if I'm mistaken in that impression, please let us know. All right, wrapping up uh, Devin's email, he says, uh, keep up the good work. And consistent release schedule. Hey, we're trying, dude. We're doing our best. Um, I'm going to say this, Devin, right now. Um, if I had the money, I'd be pillaging your online store right now. Because <laughs> there are some of those Action Comics issues that I need uh, from the more recent run of Action Comics. There are some of the Silver and Bronze Age Superman and Batman books that you have that I really, really want. Uh, but mostly some of the more recent stuff, too. So... If I had the cash, sir, you've got some good prices on these, and uh, I'd be uh, I'd be all about sending you some money. But alas, sorry, I can't do that right now, <laughs> and I feel bad because of it. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this particular episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Also, folks, I'm going to put the call out there just to let you know, at this current time, we only have four, count them, only four emails in the inbox so get busy typing folks send us some more feedback send us some more comments rants bitches complaints whatever you want to send to us we'll read it on the show because we're just like that so yeah fill up that inbox again we are back folks and we are doing our very best as the uh the last letter writer was chiding us about we are doing the very best to keep out on schedule and uh big thanks 
to my buddy here, Mike. I mean, Mike does all the heavy list lifting on this show as far as you know the editing and writing up the the, the blurbs about the shows and getting everything posted up. And uh, yeah, this last week, guys, you know, give Mike a break. It wasn't his fault. Libsyn. As much as I like Libsyn, I like the features, I like the way it works. Sometimes Libsyn's just plain screwy, and yeah, yeah. it's been giving us a hard time lately. And not just Tales, but you know the other shows, the the Two True Freaks affiliated shows that are up there. It's been giving us a hard time with posting episodes. So yeah, not at all. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just the website. So well, it was a little later than usual too, but that was just. Again, my, this is the busiest time of year for me. Most people who work in retail, their busiest time of year is Christmas. And Christmas is particularly busy, you know, at the store I work at. But I work at a big box office supply store. And it's back to school here in Georgia. So work is just, you know, most of the time I come home from work and I can and I can do like 15 other things because... While work's tiring and exhausting, it doesn't wear me down to my soul the way back to school makes me hate humanity. And depre- it's a depressing time of the year. I'm not trying to bring everyone down right here at the end of the show, but if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I really hate people at this time of year. <laughs> I thought you just hated people in general. Well, I'm not a big fan, but the thing is, is that this time of year, I... If you think Christmas retailing is bad, deal with parents during back to school and deal with teachers. Teachers have a rough time. Well, see, that that also goes into... Thank God I'm not in retail anymore. It's all I, I, I thank my lucky stars every day that I don't work retail anymore because that was one of the things that used to irritate me the most is like, you know, there was some day... I, don't get me wrong. I, I, I like interaction with people you know that that is the the, the number one thing i enjoy at, at the you know the job that i have now is i really do enjoy the interaction with people but there was something about the retail environment that would just kind of it brings out the worst in in the customer nine times out of ten so after a time of being constantly exposed to that it's the rare person where it doesn't start to affect you, where it brings out the worst of you. And like you say, you just begin to kind of hate people, you know, because it's a constant negative interaction. And one of the number one things that that used to really irritate me was where you just want to tell people, I don't want to hear your life story. I just, (laughs) you know, let me ring you up and get you the hell out of my face. You know, and <laughs> that's why now that I am on the other side of the counter again, like mo- most everybody else in the world, it irritates me when I get that. You know, you ever go somewhere and you're, I'm, it's not that I'm always in a hurry. It's just when I'm shopping, I'm there for one reason I'm there to get what I want and get the hell out, you know? With certain shopping exceptions. Yeah, and and you get that experience where you get the guy behind the counter that's, you know, you know chatty Cathy. It's like, shut up and just ring me out, damn it. Yeah, I don't want to talk to you. Just ring me the hell out. But 
I don't know. And the elderly, whose only social interaction happens at church, at funerals, and when they visit their friends in the hospital, want to tell you their life freaking story from DNA until that afternoon. <laughs> it's like, you know what, five, I used to push a pinwheel. It's like, I don't care. God. And... <laughs> Yeah, if you want to, if you want to hate people, I mean, hate people on a deep and, and and severely visceral level to the point where you're like, oh my god, I never want to talk to anybody again. Work retail, yep. for any length of time, it will it will crush you. It will crush your soul. <laughs> but you know what? At you know, this is this is the dichotomy of the situation. Is that at the same rate, I am a huge. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm so totally against the automated checkout lane. Does that make any sense at all? You know, um, I'm not because, frankly, most of the people at Kroger or Walmart can't bag worth shit. So I'd rather handle <laughs> my own groceries. Thank you. No, seriously, if, if the less social interaction I have at, at, at the retail level uh, when I'm a when I'm a customer, the better for me. If I can go in there, get what I need, check out. And get out of there really without talking to anybody. I'm a happy. I'm a happy human being, because in some stores, I don't like you. I, I just want to get my shit and get out. You know, it's just like. It's, see, it depends. Like someplace, I, I guess it shouldn't bother me that much because I. There's some places I'm gonna use Walmart as a good example. There's some places like Walmart where I'm just not gonna get what I really want out of the the guest. Ex, you know the uh, the. Uh, the guest experience, the, you know, well, the interaction with the with the person behind the counter. Because ideally, the way I think the you know, if I were in charge, the way the world would work, and it seemed like it, it was like this when I was a kid, is, um, you know, you had the pretty girl behind the counter, you know, mm-hmm. and you know they would smile and thank you for your business and all that. You know, it's not really like that anyway. You know, don't write in and tell me how sad. You know, kiss my ass. You know, it's like I want a pretty girl behind the counter. I don't um, want the person that looked like, you know, they're out on some sort of prison work release program or something like that. That's why I loved that Chick-fil-A that was in Carrollton that we, you know, when we just moved here from in Georgia. Every girl that worked at that was a pretty young girl, and they understood the nature of the drive-through, or, or even you know coming in. This they understood why people liked to come in there. They want to be met by a pleasant, smiling, okay. pretty face, not somebody that's all creepy and surly. You know. Here is where I'm going to defend you with facts. <laughs> I was I'm serious. You're going to tear me down with the facts. no, no, because because because, because here's the thing. In my experience of five years working for Office Depot mm-hmm. and and the three years I spent at Home Depot and all of the convenience stores I worked at in my youth. <laughs> my wife keeps saying, who hate their employees? Who hate their employees? When it comes to selling things... On the front end, <laughs> on the front end, if you have a pretty girl at the register checking people out, going, do you want to you want to sign up for our, you know, our work life rewards program and our you know our customer care card, and do you want to buy this plan? 
pretty girls sell more and get more signups. Just across the board. If they ask, they get it. I'm not joking. I'm not lying. I'm not saying that to be sexist. I have seen this with my own eyes. So you're absolutely right. And that's why, you know what? As much as I kind of prefer to eat at Wendy's or McDonald's, I love going to Chick-fil-A because I know the person across the counter is going to be polite, is going to be pleasant, and actually looks like they want to be there. Right. Whereas if I go to McDonald's, the person behind the counter looks like a broken shell of a human being. (laughs) Yep. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. (laughs) Plus, Chick-fil-A has really good chicken salad sandwiches. I like See, that's what retail needs these days. More sexism. (laughs) This issue of All-Star Squadron has never been reprinted. You know, it's really going to be great when we get to Infinity Incorporated, where we can actually tell people... (laughs) <laughs> where are the books because because all-star squadron is this like depressing desert of you can't see this unless you find it in a back issue bin <laughs> <sighs> I, I need my job <laughs> thank you for listening to another exciting episode of tales of the justice society of america hosted by scott h gardner and michael r bailey if you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to tales of the jsa at gmail.com thanks for listening and come back next week for another installment of the tales of the justice society of america how they died for liberty let's remember pearl harbor